Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Stacy Ferreira, who is thinking pretty intensely about the future of work uh, and something that shows up a lot on this sh- show. So we got into it. We also ended up going into a lot of different directions about the about dancing, about health, about a whole bunch of different stuff, about the meaning of reality. And so I really hope that you find a lot of value from this episode. If you do, find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and leaving us a review and hit the subscribe button. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Stuart Allsop, III, uh, and let me know what you think of this episode. Let me know if it changed your the way you think or the way you think about fu- the future of work. And yeah, and, and hope you find it value, to value and have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here today is Stacy Ferreira. She is the CEO and founder of Forge. Uh, and Forge is a talent sharing platform that empowers businesses to share part-time employees and offer more hours to attract and retain their associates. Uh, welcome to the show, Stacy. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I appreciate it. Cool. What is the thing that you are most excited about right now? The thing that I'm most excited about I mean, I think there's a lot of things. We're at a really interesting inflection point, I feel like, in history. Um, I think the thing that, you know, the thing that wakes me up every morning is thinking about the future of work. I think I've always been really interested in people and their stories and, and how people live and how people decide to make choices. And I think the way that people work are working is radically changing just because of new advents in technology, changes in things like education that are uh, kind of leading factors to where we're going to be from a workforce perspective. So, you know, broadly future of work, more specifically, you know, interested in people's stories as it relates to that. And how do you personally or professionally, I guess, uh, draw the line between work and play? You know, it's a really hard question. Um, there was a point in my life where probably about five years ago where my life motto was, um, you know, sometimes you have to live an unbalanced life to be able to make impact in the world. And so that's kind of how I lived my life for probably the first, you know, five to eight years of my career. And then something happened about two years ago where, you know, I kind of woke up one day and I was like, you know what? I don't know that that's 100% true. Like I've been telling myself this, I've been telling other people this, that like you have to live a completely unbalanced life if you want to have impact and and create big meaning. And then I realized that it's it's not 100% about that. Um, I mean, it comes down to values and what you want. So maybe for some people it is, but mm-hmm. uh, then I started to make a little bit more of a delineation saying, hey, you know, there is a split to some extent between work and life and it's, it's okay to have those things separately. And now, you know, I, I work with people who are friends of mine. So, um, there's that, but at the same time, you know, we spend time at work and then we spend time hanging out outside of work and we try and keep those boundaries pretty clear. Interesting. That's a, that's a huge thing I go into the show is, is, and one of my previous guests, Keith Raboy, would would uh, heartily disagree with you and say that that it is still that you still need to uh, uh, sacrifice your life for uh, big challenge work. Um, and then now I've based on interviewing him and based on interviewing a bunch of other people and then looking at my own life, I came to the conclusion that in order to build a billion dollar company, it's very, very unlikely that you'll do that without sacrificing a significant amount of your personal life. Uh, me saying that, what does that bring up in you? Um, do you think it is possible to build, build a billion dollar company or plus billion dollar company without sacrificing your personal life? You know, I think there are, there are stages probably in, in everyone's mm. life cycle. Um, you know, I think it's, it's also a very like Silicon Valley-esque idea that a founder takes a company from zero to hero, mm. right? The founder mm-hmm. takes a company from just an idea to building an MVP to getting your first clients to that billion dollar win. And so, you know, I'll be the first one to admit again, the first like five to eight years of my career, I had some big wins and I was 150% in on my career. There was really nothing else. And, um, you know, talk to some people probably in my past and they'll probably say that my relationship suffered a little bit because of that. So I do think that there's a time and a place for that. And if your goal 
is I want to build a billion dollar business at all costs, recognize that, yeah, you're, there's going to be a lot of sacrifices. You're probably going to have to give up, but there are also time times and places where you can hire other people to relieve some of that. Um, and I think that's a personal choice of like, you can be involved in that billion dollar win, but maybe you don't need to be involved from uh, like day one to, to day one billion, you know? And that, that gives another nuance, which I have not heard yet, which is that uh, a, a stage, it matters what the stage is. So let's go into it and let's say, so there's the beginning stage where you're going from zero to one, and then you're going in, in Peter Thiel's kind of framework where you're, uh, wait, was it N to one or zero to, no, it's zero to one. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, and then past that stage when you've figured out that one and then you're growing it, um, uh, where do you think that line is? Where is the most effort required and where is the most sacrifice required? Yeah. Um, I think it kind of depends on the, on the person's skill set. personally for uh, just given my experience. So I'll just say, I always preface things, you know, I'm, I'm one data point given my experience going from zero to one is by far the hardest thing to do going from literally just an idea with no people around it, meaning no one helping you work on this idea, bring it to life, no customers, no supporters, no nothing, going from that to something that is tangible, real, profitable as a business. I think that that's the hardest part. And then, of course, as a part of that zero to one, you know, building a, a scalable, repeatable business model and then I feel like once you have that repeatable business model, your kind of optimization changes a little bit where the, the things you start to think about once you have that repeatable business model is just, hey, do I have the right people internally in my business who will continue to drive those results, continue to iterate on that business model so that we can do things better, cheaper, faster, smarter, so that we can win out against competition and grow extremely fast. And those, those types of questions are radically different than the questions of, you know, what should this business be? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? What's the solution that we need to build? Who are the customers that we need to target? How much should we charge for this thing? Like, those are all a very different set of questions. Um, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think for me, that one is the hardest part. And then it's just about optimization and how can I make stuff better and more efficient and make sure that I have the right people really to do mm. that? It's the people mm. at the end of the day at that, at that mm. point, because you can't and do it yourself. And the, it does answer the question and brings up a new question, which is um, what is the most fun part of you, part of it? Do you, even though that, that, that first part is hard, do you find that ch challenging in a fun way? I do. You know, I think for me, the thing, I always talk to friends about this, like what draws people to start companies, right? It's a, it's a really interesting question because when you think about all the stuff that you have to go through as, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, even as an early employee at a startup, it, I always ask people, you know, why would you put yourself through that? <laughs> right? Like it's, it's really hard. But at the same time, you know, the conclusion that I've come to for myself is it's really hard, but it's also quite possibly one of the most intellectually stimulating things that you can do um, beyond like reading a book or, or um, immersing yourself in a podcast. Those I tend to see as like solo ventures, which are also great. And I absolutely love doing both of those, but with a team of people trying to make an impact in the world, I feel like it is perhaps one of the most challenging intellectual endeavors. And that's what I like about it. I would say that it's more than just intellectual too, because it's emotional. There's there's huge uh, huge emotional and maybe even kinesthetic. Um, I've been working on this new uh, framework. I didn't I didn't create it myself. I got it from uh, Tom Myers, who is a, a body worker. As we were talking before the the uh, before we started recording, um, and he has this great framework, which is you've got IQ. People have been aware of IQ for a long time now. You've got EQ. You've got people who have been aware of EQ, emotional intelligence for the last like 20 to 30 years. And then you've got this other one called kinesthetic 
quotient, which is the, your ability to feel your body and, uh, in time and space and act. And, and in many ways, that's the most primal human thing we have primal animal, um, uh, uh, animal thing that we have. Um, and so all, all three of these things are a way to kind of have a framework for understanding how we interact. So I would say that starting a company is at least two of those things. You got IQ and you got EQ. Um, and, then you've got this KQ, which is also kind of comes out in the way that you speak to your employees and do anything. Are you guys remote? Are you guys distributed? Or are you guys in person? So we're kind of a hybrid. Um, mm. we, we don't require people to come into an office, but we're all pretty much in the same geographic area. So we see each other three, two or three times a week. Mm. Interesting. Um, and so the, the reason why I asked that question was because it, it popped in my mind as I was talking about that, that the KQ part probably doesn't, the kinesthetic quotient doesn't come into it when you're like what we're doing right now. The only way that we can communicate is through the words we're using and the tone that we're using with them, um, uh, which is really interesting because now I've, I've trained myself. So now I can have these conversations, which are really meaningful with only those, those factors. But um, I don't really, I mean, wh- of all the stuff that I just said, what was the most interesting? What do you, what would you like to go further into? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing that you brought up too, is just the emotional side of entrepreneurship. You know, I think that's something too, that a lot of people don't talk about, especially in, uh, just the startup community. You know, there's this idea that, Hey, how's your day going? Everything's great. How are mm-hmm. you? I'm crushing it. I'm killing it. Um, and that emotional roller coaster, I feel like is something that not a lot of people talk about, but I'd be curious, you know, for other people too, that you've had on the podcast or just folks that you've come in contact with, you know, what are some of the ways that you've seen people deal with that emotional side of, of entrepreneurship? Yeah. And it's really interesting in this, the show that I'm doing is kind of, it, 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 I'm doing it at this time where it has now become acceptable to start talking about these things. So a lot of people have come on the show, uh, founders and, uh, and investors and, and are actually talking about this stuff in a way that 10 to 10 years ago was not possible. And, and it was funny because my dad growing up was an investor and um, is an investor. And, uh, and so definitely those conversations when I was younger and hearing all that stuff and reading all this stuff, it was not acceptable for the founder, particularly to talk about any emotional, uh, what they would say weakness. Um, and now it is becoming more and more, but then there is this line where you still, have to display you can't you can't you can't i believe as a founder you can't fully show what's going on internally and all the internal pressures and all the all the changes and all the ups and downs uh, emotionally you can't transmit that to your, to the people working with you um uh because it and i'd be curious to think hear about what you think do, do you think it is possible to have that level of vulnerability with the people working with you to allow them to feel uh, the chaos that sometimes a founder may feel, but doesn't transmit. You know, I feel like that caps out like around five people on the team. <laughs> so uh-huh. I, I feel like you can have it in maybe like the very, very early days. And then once you mm. start growing beyond five, you know, you start to have different personalities. Like I'll never forget. There was one point, I think we were around seven people or eight people at forge. And, um, I was making some comment. We did we did stand up, which is common for you know companies to do, where you get all the employees together and you kind of talk about, hey, what were the big wins for the week? What were the things that we need to work on? And in those stand ups, I used to always talk about you know how much money is in the bank. And I remember one employee pulled me aside after a stand up, and he was like, I don't I don't want to know. Like mm-hmm. that's scary to me as someone who has a family, like if you could just keep that to yourself, I trust you. I know that you're managing the money correctly. Just don't, don't tell the team or don't tell me. And that was an eye opener to me because before that, you know, we had been a team of four really close people and it was, we shared everything. And then I realized, Oh shoot, you know, we're, we're not in that position anymore and people react differently to certain things. And you kind of have to think about that as someone who's, you know, leading and collaborating with others who have different emotions throughout the, throughout the entrepreneurial journey. That's a really great point. Um, and how, so you were at seven or eight employees. How many employees are you at, at now? Um, so we've got, so we've got a, a small core team and then we've got probably about somewhere between 16 and 22 that we flux that are mm-hmm. like part-time 
uh, flexible people. And so this is one of the things, you know, I'm, of course, I'm like fast fascinated with the future of work. Right. And one of my core beliefs is that the way that people are working is changing and the way that people want to interact with companies is different. Like we see this all the time. People are like, Oh, this person is job hopping from company to company to company. The reality is most people are like working one core job, but then they're working two or three other side gigs, whether it's mm-hmm. working for themselves on a play or a podcast or um, a book or whatever it may be, or even working for another company as a freelancer on the side. And so we kind of live by that motto of, you know, perhaps we've got a, a larger quote unquote team of flex people who kind of come and go as, as needed working on projects um, which really accommodates different people's lifestyle, which I, I love. I feel like it increases a lot to employee engagement and employee satisfaction. That's very interesting. And so a lot of questions come up about that. So you believe that the, the future of work is like what has been talked about by some people, which is essentially most of us are going to work a lot of different jobs. Most of us are going to be freelancers. Most of us are going to be entrepreneurs. Um, I guess we should qualify what most means because I think there definitely is a subsegment of, of the population where, you know, the stability is not only needed, but it's necessary, especially, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as a society, especially here in the United States right now is when we talk about giving people freedom and flexibility of, of career choice, you know, healthcare is one of the biggest issues that we face in the United States. And when you talk to a lot of folks and you ask you know, you hate your job. Why do you continue working there? For a lot of folks, it comes down to the healthcare. And so I think when we ask, you know, will most people work freelancing or um, entrepreneurial jobs or start their own business? I think that healthcare component is really one of the big hindrances where I would say, you know, probably not most because of that factor, a good portion of them. And if we can find a way to fix that, then I would change my outlook on, on that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge, the healthcare thing is, is a huge, huge thing. And having my own health issues know how important it is. And I'm super lucky to be able to afford uh, the hours, hours and hours and hours of, of preventative things like diet, uh, yoga, uh, exercise, uh, coaching, all of those things that really help me prevent these health problems from arising. But then most people don't even make that connection about preventative stuff and are stuck in this model of healthcare, which is a prescriptive model where you go to the authority, the authority tells you what to do and you go back and, and, and kind of implement those things and, and everything works out, but it doesn't actually work out in my experience. It hasn't, it doesn't work out. Um, and I believe that that probably doesn't work out for a lot of people and it's mostly just a bandage. Uh, so it's really interesting because, health is such a difficult thing. And as you said, it's like, it's changing rapidly. Healthcare, the healthcare system and our healthcare system isn't adequate. Um, I don't know if you have anything based on what I said, or I can ask another question. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, I mean, I think one of the, one of the biggest things too, that you hit the nail on the head is, you know, a lot of times too, we, we listen to these authority figures and Um, they say certain things like, Hey, at this point, you've got to take X, Y, and Z medicine or whatever it is. And it's, it's tough, right? Cause you know, one of the things that I always think about, and I'm, I'm curious with you and and some of your health experience, you know, my natural inclination is especially because of technology now to think, Hey, how do you know what's best for me? Mm -hmm. Um, in the sense of, okay, I understand that you're prescribing, um, you know, you're prescribing medicine, but who's to say that that's really the best way to treat something? Um, I'll, I'll give kind of another personal example. So my, both of my parents have kind of mild health issues and both of them take medication for their respective things. And one of the big questions that I always have is, you know, do they really need to be taking those medications or is there actually like a diet change that needs to happen that their healthcare providers are not prescribing for them because it's not something that they can really make money off of. And so this is one of my big like skepticisms too with, with healthcare in general is just, you know, are there other things that we could be doing that is not just popping pills to make us feel better? 
Um, I think diet's a, a big one of them. Exercise, you and I were talking about, you know, kind of like mental, um, kind of mental health, mental awareness, and also just like taking care of your body, like going and getting a massage or taking a spa day or whatever it is to just kind of reset. Um, so I think that's really fascinating too, which is like, can we think out of the box beyond like little capsules and pills to see what else could we be doing to help, you know, our bodies better, uh, better thrive. Thank you so much for opening up this rabbit hole because it's a rabbit hole I love to go down. Uh, uh, so I, 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 the main yoga teacher that I had was a physical therapist as well, and so he got trained in both the Western science and the in the um, uh, the yoga science, the Eastern Eastern philosophy. Um, and uh, one of the big things I learned from him, his name is Harvey Deutsch. He's really good. If if you've got any. Uh, health issues and you want to figure out how you can fix them w without taking medication, without doing all that stuff. And exercise is the thing that we've learned. But the main thing that I've, I've learned from him is that uh, it takes about 20 years for new medical evidence new, uh, to enter the your mainstream uh, doctor's uh, head um, and actually translate into their practice. And that makes sense, actually. So it makes sense that it takes 20 years because uh, a lot of time doctors are conservative, so they, they don't want to um, uh, risk uh, new evidence coming in that hasn't been fully supported by the documentation. But there's also an issue with that because now, um, for example, the science behind fascia and connective tissue, which is really, really interesting. So they're finding out now that uh, UCSF is finding out that um, cancer uh, is very, very related to the stiffness of connective tissue. And when you get a massage, that's exactly what they're working on. They're working on that stiffness of connective tissue. And it, they're finding that the connective tissue itself, if it's stiff, will actually increase the rate of cancer growth. Um, so it creates this Petri dish of cancer growth. Uh, and then a lot of people think, with because they've been trained in this Western medical understanding of burrowing down into the site of whatever is happening that, oh, okay, so I'll just get a massage on that area. And it doesn't actually work that way because the connective tissue is a, a system-wide matrix that your body is uh, basically have. And so the whole thing is working. So if there's one thing off, there's going to be another thing off. And then, and so you can't just kind of going at the symptom of thing isn't going to work as well. Uh, so yes, there, uh, and that's that 20 year gap. And now you have the, like you said, you have the technology where, um, if I have a question about, about the way fascia works, I no longer need to go to the doctor to, to ask that question. I have the internet. Um, and yes, there's a lot of information on the internet that is not true, but I have also been trained because I've grown up with the internet since I've been 16. And I had some really good teachers in my high school, uh, who told me not to believe everything that I, I read on the internet, but I, I now have this 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 uh, training and essentially figuring out what is false and what is not false. And of course, I'm not going to say that I'm always right on that, uh, but but there is a training that you can get in order to find the best information. So if if your doctor tells you you have something and they say this is how you solve it, you can actually go and check whether that is the, th the way you solve it or is that the only way to solve it. Um, I don't know if you. Have what resources have you found? Like, what resources online do you utilize to learn whether things are true or false? Like, obviously, this is a big topic of conversation beyond just health in our society right now, which is like this whole like fake news, right? And fact check, and how do we how do we do that? What resources do you use to kind of check those things, if any? Uh, yeah, and this is this is uh, uh, so this is the epistemology. This is the word that we use to to figure out how to come to the uh, understanding of what is true and what is not, uh, and this is this is a this is a, a, a large conversation, but I love having it as well. I've had it many times, um, and ultimately, it, it is very very difficult as individuals to uh, come to the veracity of anything. Even the statement "I see that cup" uh, is in fact not a accurate representation of what's really going on. Uh, we can go into that if you want. If you want, want after after I talk about what well, I can talk about why even that statement itself is not the most accurate of statements. But generally, the thing that I do is I ping it. I ping it across many different sources. So I'll find something, and the the key thing for me is not necessarily believing anything that I read. Um, and then and then uh, I'll take that and I'll go to Harvey and I'll say, Hey, Harvey, what is your thought on this? Have you read anything about this? Um, and then he'll give me an answer and I, I don't really trust that either. And then I go to multiple different sources. So it's, it's in, and, and for me, a lot of this has been motivated by pain. Essentially I'm, I'm in pain, so I've got to figure out 
what is true about about pain. And one thing I've learned about uh, about pain is that uh, most doctors will tell you that pain originates inside the muscle. But I've learned that that's not true. I've learned from a lot of the researchers in fascia, who most of whom were all um, body workers, who were so interested in this in this connective tissue that they started to actually dive in and research it themselves, and and find money to actually like research it in in the lab or in or in studies. And what we're finding is that fascia, the fascial components of muscle muscle, because muscle itself is wrapped within fascia, um, is. Uh, the fascial components are is where the sens- sensory receptors are. So a lot of times the the pain has to do with fascial adhesions, um, and also the, the map that the brain has of the body, and also trauma. Uh, so so chronic pain is co-endemic with uh, uh, child- adverse childhood experiences, um, uh, uh, and and oftentimes physical pain is a manifestation of emotional pain. That piece right there, I haven't found any evidence for that, but I have uh, experienced it my own in my own thing. And then to know what is true, there's another way we can do it. We can, um, uh, the, in, I, I study a lot of yogic philosophy and that in, uh, in yoga, you had three sources of truth. You have, um, there are three checked fact, or you have three ways to check truth. Uh, one through your own experience, uh, one through the community, uh, and then one through, uh, uh, the community of spiritual practice practitioners that you're involved with. And then one is the scripture. Uh, so those are three di- different ways. And for scripture, I would say science is our scripture now. Um, and, uh, so, and scientists are our scripture. And the interesting thing is it's really f- funny to talk to doctors and then talk to scientists because doctors, a lot of times you go to a doctor because they're the authority. And so they have an authoritative way of saying things. They're like, yep, that's what's going on. They're going to diagnose you, but you go to a scientist and a scientist, it's really hard for you, them to, for you to pin them down and say, so this is what you believe. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're very skeptical and that's, that's the way they do science. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I'd love to hear any response to any of the, the, the random stuff I just said. No, I think it's all fascinating, but you know what? It's also, I think making me realize that I might need to go get a massage later tonight. (laughs) (laughs) You should, I I can try to think with somebody in LA. I don't, I don't know if I know a lot of massage people in LA. Do you already have somebody you go to regularly? I don't really, but now mm-hmm. now that we're having this conversation and I'm learning a lot about fascia and its connection to potentially cancer, I'm like, oh man, I gotta I gotta go figure this out. I gotta get some. And then, and then there's yeah. diet too. The really really interesting thing, thing about fascia is that fascia is um, irrigated uh, with these little things called microvacuoles, and these microvacuoles, uh, when they don't have irrigation uh, hydration, uh, they get kinked up and the, they don't supply irrigation to the tissue. Uh, and, but that doesn't mean that you drink more water. It actually means that you want to exercise more. And I don't mean exercise by the sense of like high intensity interval training. I mean, just going for a walk. Um, like, so going for a walk will actually, uh, um, basically unkink those garden hoses. Uh, and, and I found it, you know, this depends on, on, a on the individual, but I found for my own personal growth and, um, health, I found that four hours of low intensity exercise, with about 20 to 30 minutes of high intensity exercise is the sweet spot for um, making my body feel like it's magic um, and also healing. Uh, yes, per day. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. I wonder how, okay, let's talk a little bit about how you structure your day. Like how are you yeah. getting four hours of that in? I would imagine I'm just thinking about my own routine. Cause I, I do, yeah. I, I, running every morning and I run for 45 minutes and then I go on an hour walk every night and I decompress and I write my to-do list for the next day. And that's kind of how I, you know, transition out of one day and, and get ready for the next. But how do you get four hours of that in, in one day or like, I mean, you already got two. Yeah, you already got two hours there. Uh, so, so generally the, the two ways is I have a morning walk uh, and then I try to do a lot of phone calls on while I'm walking as well. Um, and that's a big one, particularly, uh, in, in, you know, you're in an executive role management role. So you can actually kind of like, if you're taking phone calls, you can do those on the walk, but it, it introduces complexity at some points. Uh, but, uh, and then dancing is another one. Um, so generally I like to go, I like to go dancing every night and at, at a different, um, and I'm not talking about partying and dancing. I'm talking about like, uh, dance, uh, classes and then a, a social with various different dance, uh, partner dancing, um, 
so yeah, like, and, and I don't hit it at all the times, but that, in that two hour, probably that two hour kind of low, low level intensity exercise that you're already getting is totally fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming from it at a point of like, I've had a medical thing that I've been dealing with for the last seven years. So that I have had to prioritize, uh, prioritize this kind of, that kind of routine. Gotcha. And not to change the subject completely, what type of dance are you doing? Is it like salsa or ballroom or what do you, what's your specialty? What do you like? All of it. Uh, so, so I got a, it's one, one every day. So, and usually they don't, a lot of the times different hap, happen every day. So you got Zouk, which is a Brazilian form of dance, which is getting really popular. Um, and then you got, I do a lot of salsa. Uh, I want to get into swing. I haven't done it too much. I've just been getting into tango uh, and then ecstatic dance uh, every Sunday and Wednesday. Uh, they have it in LA. It's a great, that's a great, great way to do it. Dance, uh, let's go, go further down this rabbit hole. So, uh, Along with massage, dance is also a really great way to um, train your brain because uh, you mentioned running and walking, and these are essentially uh, linear activities where we're going in a line. Uh, but I believe that reality is nonlinear, and dancing is the form of exercise which can make you more realistic uh, in terms of your ability to ha- uh, in- to integrate a nonlinear understanding of reality. Um, uh, starting a company is another great one because uh, because uh, you know as, soon, as you may know as soon as you start a company things go do not go the way that you expect uh, and then uh, bring in all sorts of complexity so so uh, but dancing is the kinesthetic quotient part of that of that thing where uh, because a lot of times if in rehab situations they'll have people walk backwards um, because walking backwards trains your ability I don't know what it does exactly neurologically but it it is really helpful for a lot of people. Uh, and most people can't walk backwards and dancing is, is like half of it, particularly in partner dancing is walking backwards. Um, and then you got side to side movements as well. Uh, so it really trains your muscles and your brain, uh, to adapt to the nonlinear reality of life. I actually, that is mind blowing to me. I'd never really thought about dance in that way versus running or walking before. I absolutely love that analogy that's amazing we should uh we should do some like uh founders dance events or something like that i think that would be really cool how often are you in la uh so i'm actually coming down the 14th and the 18th i got some interviews i will be some doing some dancing so if you if you or any other founders or anybody or any friends want to join um you're more than welcome to come yeah let's do a founder event yeah oh cool yeah let's totally do it in uh uh september 14th to 18th are you around I think I am. I'll have to just, I'll double check my calendar after this and then I'll, I'll let you sure. know, but I think I'll be here. That'd cool. Be and if any founders, if any founders are listening to this, I'll, I'll publish it before then. So uh, uh, if any founders are listening, you guys are welcome to come as well. Perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really, I feel like we're ideating on something important and interesting here. Uh, so I think that's cool. I also think it's awesome because, you know, kind of not to go full circle here, but, you know, going back to that emotional part of entrepreneurship, it's also just mm. hard in general to carve out the time and space. Mm. And then even when you do and you go and hang out with friends, um, you know, I, I love all my friends, but sometimes they can't relate in the same way that another founder can. So it's fun to just like get everyone together and say, hey, you know, at one point we all went through the same thing or we're going through mm. it at right now together. And so it's really fun whenever you can get those communities together of just, hey, if, if you've gone through this or we have this shared experience through entrepreneurship, let's hang out because um, it's a unique, it's always a unique crew and it's fun. And that's that's something you, you mentioned earlier about how there's this difference of starting a company and then starting a podcast. And it's really interesting because I, I, I was a founder for about uh, five years um, and uh, and that experience changed me so significantly that it made it hard to relate to a lot of people because uh, I, there was this in the same way that living in another country also did the same way because it, it both of them are paradigm shifting experiences where you uh, most people don't have those experiences so it becomes hard to relate to them and they're so transformative in the same way that a, maybe a psychedelic trip might be um, and so it's really interesting. Then you, you brought up the, the podcast thing and it is a solo thing. Um, and it's weird though, because I still find myself connecting and interviewing mostly founders uh, uh, because I know that, that I'll have a really good conversation with them often, oftentimes because of what you just mentioned. Um, I'm curious to hear what for you has been 
the major shift intellectually, emotionally, um, and maybe kinesthetically in terms of uh, how you have changed, how this process has changed? Because you started pretty young. You were a Teal Fellow, right? Yeah, I was. So I, I started my first company when I was 18. And I've mm. basically, you know, I, I sold that company. So I worked at um, a company that acquired us for about a year and then, um, and then published a book and then decided to get back into entrepreneurship. So I've always kind of been involved in, I, I like to sometimes say I'm a creator. Like I just, I like the act of creating things and I've, I've pretty much done that for my entire career. Um, but yeah, because of that, I think it's been an interesting, an interesting journey. I feel like, you know, looking back and maybe it's, maybe it's an age thing where I've just, you know, grown up always doing this, but I feel like in having to start a business, I, or I guess since I've started my businesses, I've, I've kind of felt more, I don't know if like alive is is the word like more connected in I feel like there's a lot more knowledge you have to have to to be kind of high level and see all these moving parts and and be able to you know figure out where the moving parts are going and then you know construct other organizations around those moving parts to see them through um so I just feel like I, I have to be a little bit more awake in everything that I'm doing. Whereas maybe in high school or before I started my first company, it was just kind of like, okay, I'm following the set path. This is what everyone does. I'm kind of on autopilot, kind of just like letting life happen to me. Whereas in starting a company, um, I feel like now it's like every day I'm really, you know, holding on, gripping tight and digging in and understanding things to be able to push, push ideas and push, um, to try and create, create the future that I want in the world. Totally. And when I was listening to you say that, I r- remember going back to high school and I wasn't ever very good at it, but, uh, uh, a lot of people are, are good at it and you don't really need to contend with reality. You just need to contend with reality as the teacher sees it, uh, and then kind of have a theory of mind about what they want. And then and basically um, fit that theory of mine. It took me a long time to figure that out. But uh, uh, other people get it and other people do it. But then once you start a company, you are not no longer kind of having a theory of mind uh, uh, debate with a teacher. You're, you're, you're having a, a real experience of reality and what reality kind of, uh, uh, what reality is giving you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I'd like to ask you, what is your, relationship to uncertainty um where how what yeah what is your relationship to uncertainty i think i thrive in it um i think it's the thing going back to you know something that i said earlier i feel like uncertainty is the thing that gives me that intellectual sim- stimulation to some extent um mm-hmm. where you know, you're uncertain of what's going to happen and you kind of have to dig for clues or um, learn something new to be able to kind of get to that next step. Um, I don't know, you know, for you or, or anyone listening, like everyone who knows me knows that one of the biggest things that I love is I love escape rooms. These are like, the new, you know, games that you, you walk into a room and you have to figure out how to escape. And that's kind of like a small scale of, you know, you walk into a room, it's uncertain what's in there and what you have to do. And it's kind of like a big puzzle that you have to figure out. And so I don't, that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I love uncertainty because basically that means there's an opportunity to learn something new or an opportunity to figure something out that I didn't previously know and an opportunity to kind of explore and create. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Like, what, what are your thoughts on uncertainty? And obviously you've, you know, you've traveled all over the world, you've done a lot of stuff, so um, you must have a good relationship with it too, but curious, what, what are your thoughts? I had a good relationship until uncertainty bit back. Uh, and then, uh, and then I was kind of like gung ho about it, but then I got myself in a situation uh, which was extremely painful and uh, uh, mind bending Um and that uh, made me or, or if you don't sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I have no problem with it. I, um, I uh, started. I basically got advice. Uh, I had an advisor for a company who turned out to be not who he said he was, and, uh, um, and the process of figuring that out uh, made me question a lot of the things that I had done, and, and a lot of a lot of the reasons that I trust him, and and kind of made me question my, my whole life, to be frank. And and the business uh, didn't uh, didn't survive that. Uh, and that was a very painful process. And then, uh, and then, um, and then that led later on, it's like they're unrelated, but it then led to a, a medical, uh, procedure that went wrong. And, uh, and then, uh, and then I, I've been dealing with that for the last six years. And actually this podcast is, is, is essentially, I was in so much stress that I started to, to interview other people about how they were dealing with stress, particularly creative people. Um, and, uh, uh, because I, I've been creative as well. So, so that it made me a lot more cautious about my relationship with uncertainty and, uh, uh, and, and going full force into uncertainty. So now I still, I still enjoy uncertain situations and I still, um, uh, uh, but, but it is also, I, I'm much more cautious now about my full fledged kind of like, Oh, I'm just going to run into it. Uh, so now I, I tip, tip my toe into uncertainty. Uh, so that's, that's my relationship with uncertainty now. Makes sense. And I feel like that's also something, you know, the more of the world that you get to see, um, <laughs> the more kind of cautious you can be, because I also feel like when you're kind of bright eyed and everything is good, at least, you know, speaking from my own experience. And then the more that you've kind of grow up, you go around the block, you see a lot of things. Um, I don't know if jaded is the right word, quite, quite, maybe that's a little too aggressive of a word, but, um, you know, there is some truth to that where I always used to kind of, you know, you hear parents or adults when you're young say, you know, oh, I, I've seen that or I've, um, you know, I've, I've, you'll understand one day and then you kind of grow up and you're like, oh, now I get it. And now I understand why yep. they say that because I didn't get it, but now I do. And I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had to go through that and there's no way that hearing that had to, would, would have made me uh, not experience that or something like that. Exactly. You kind of this, have to this, live it yourself. So. Yeah. This brings up a really interesting question that I want to ask myself and ask you as well. Um, because there is this childlike sense of naivete and innocence and uh, wonder uh, that is really beautiful. Um, and I, I, in asking myself this question now, which is, can you retain a certain semblance of that childlike wonder while also remaining adult, being an adult and having the wisdom of adult? Um, and what do you think? Do, do you, can you? It's actually a really hard question. Um, I think you can try. I think, I think the best that you can do is try. What I mean by that is, you know, I think one of the benefits that you have too of growing up is is hopefully becoming more self aware. And so this is something that I've kind of noticed myself, especially over the past few years, is I feel a, a kind of a a more connected. I feel more connected with myself and my place mm -hmm. in the world. And I think that allows me to kind of open up that, that childlike part of my brain again, where there are some times where people will, I'll give an example, like a friend will pitch me a new idea for a company. And all of a sudden I feel my brain and even then vocally I start to say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And what about this? As kind of like, these are all the reasons why this won't work. But then I have to kind of retrain myself and become, you know, self-aware again and say, hey, Stacy, actually, you know, take a step back. And what would, what would you have thought about this idea, you know, when you were 18 years old, when you were just starting out, when, um, you know, when you were a little bit more open to ideas? And I, I try to be a little bit more self-aware of, Hey, I'm I'm coming at this because I've seen a lot of other companies like this one potentially fail or stumble on these things, and say, Hey, benefit of the doubt, why could this work as opposed to why won't this work? And so I I think being self aware and reframing where I am is the way that I get myself or try at least to get myself back to that childlike mentality of anything's possible, and you know put your mind to it and you'll find a way and 
all those sorts of things that you kind of need, I, I feel like, to become, you know, a successful business person. You kind of have to put yourself back in that place to some extent. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a beautiful question. Uh, can the childlike sense of wonder, if it comes from an adult place, can it actually make you a better business person? I think that it can. Um, Interesting. What are your thoughts on it? I, I, I would need to, I would need to think on that. I don't think I can, I don't think I can give an answer. So I can't expect you to give one either, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm optimistic that it can. I, I, and this, this gets into a question for me about meditation. Cause I believe that meditation, the result of meditation is that childlike wonder, um, and, and the adult like wisdom, you become more realistic and you become, uh, more, have a more joy in your life as well. Um, and I do believe that meditation also makes you a better business person, or I'm sorry, I do believe that the uh, result of a meditation, uh, will make you a bit better business person. Um, and so it's an interesting question. Um, and I think that one might have to come out in experience. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is, I think, um, you know, for me, that childlike wonder is also, very closely linked to happiness for me. Mm. And so this is something mm. that I, and I don't know if this is for everyone. So I'd be curious if it applies for you, but when I am happy or I feel like emotionally fulfilled and I feel like I'm in a good spot, I feel like I'm much more open and receptive and I can kind of put myself in a place to have that childlike wonder or just be open to meeting new people and exploring new ideas and all that sort of stuff. And so that's also like a checkpoint that I always try and take with myself, which is like, I, I heard this actually on a podcast once I listened to a, a podcast called Farnham Street. And um, on that podcast, there was a guest who mentioned, you know, take checkpoints throughout the day. Are you above the line or below the line? Like, are you feeling happy and filled or not? And that's always something too, where I try and take a self checkpoint of, hey, I'm not going to be in a place where I'm creative or coming up with good ideas or have that childlike wonder if I'm below the line. I just know myself. Mm. And so I always try and get to a place above the line. Very interesting. And yes, I do. I do agree with that. And I do find it in my own life. And I've uh, studied the yogic philosophy on this. And there's a really interesting uh, nuance that most people don't talk about when they talk about happiness. And in this case, it actually probably is better to talk about it as in joy. Um, uh, so the, the nuance is that essentially most people talk about joy in, in the West about this, that it's one thing, but you can actually separate joy into two different types of joy, um, maybe even more, but, but the two broad types of joy are conditioned joy. Uh, so joy that comes about from the results of some sort of action, um, or condition, uh, and then there's unconditioned joy. So joy that arises spontaneously and, uh, with no, uh, conditions opposed on it. Um, and paradoxically, uh, there are things you can do to make unconditional joy more likely. A lot of them have to do with ethics and, uh, a lot of them have to do with, uh, the yogic the practices that yogic philosophy talks about. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and a lot of it has to do with genes and, and chance. And, um, like you, you, I'm sure you've met people who are might not have the most money, might not have the most success, but are just happy uh, and are pretty much always in that state of happiness. Do you, have you, have you met people with that? I have. And I always am like, how do I become like you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, then, then uh, uh, researching the term Ananda, A-N-A-N-D-A -A -A, uh, would give you an insight into it, but of course it's unconditioned. So, so it's, it's very difficult to, to, uh, do anything with the goal of unconditioned happiness. So it more comes, I've found that it more comes from a relentless search for truth. Um, uh, and, but there's this dichotomy between truth and uh, uh, joy because joy is just the byproduct of the, the, the truth of the search for truth. And so um, if joy becomes the search, then you've put a condition on it and then it, and it, and it becomes unlikely. Uh, so it's really, it's really, I've, I think about this a lot. Uh, and I, I've, I've, I've now gotten to the point where I experience this unconditioned joy a lot more than I used to, but I've definitely not, uh, not permanent. Um, so it's interesting. Just kind of curious. So when you, when you, you know, think about things like conditioned or unconditioned joy, 
are you reading books on this? Are you reading blogs on it? Like, how do you, how do you mm-hmm. learn about these different topics? What, what are your kind of your go-tos or do you have any book recommendations on, on conditioned or unconditioned joy? I have so many, but, uh, but it's a very important point. And thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, the, I was reading about it, but that reading about it was ineffective uh, until I started to meet with somebody who uh, lives in that, in that place of unconditioned joy. Uh, and then these people can essentially show you how to do it. Uh, so the biggest thing, if you are interested in this unconditioned joy is to, is to work one-on-one, uh, with somebody who is in that place. Um, and I have, I've, I've, um, I'm actually opening up, this is out to anybody else who's listening. I'm opening up my Monday meditation sessions. I, I, my, uh, my meditation teacher is Jonathan Harrison out of Israel. And we meet together every Monday at 8 AM, uh, and Pacific time. Uh, and he, uh, is, he's, he's, he's got this unconditional joy and he, he can show people it. Uh, and so I'm opening up that if anybody wants to join, um, it's Monday, 8 AM at, at PST Pacific time. Uh, and we, we meet and, uh, you can come and ask him questions and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I recommend him. And then if you want to read about the, uh, read about the yogic philosophy the, in a very, very, like, there's a word I'm looking for, the very authentic tradition of, of yogic philosophy in the Kashmir Shaivite tradition, um, which talks a lot about unconditioned joy. You can look at Christopher Wallace, um, his book, Tantra Illuminated. Um, and I'm not talking about Neo-Tantra, although there's nothing wrong with Neo-Tantra. Neo-Tantra is the what most people assume Tantra means, which is the sexual practices. Uh, but originally, Tantra is a uh, 9th century AD um, Kashmiri philosophy, yogic philosophy of how to find spiritual liberation. Um, and, and that uh, Christopher Wallace is a great scholar on that and gives really, really beautiful and intellectually stimulating uh, um, synopses and, and explanations of, of all this different stuff. So those are the two main people, Jonathan Harrison. And Jonathan also has a book called Ending Stress. Um, so Jonathan Harrison and Christopher Wallace are two people I would look into. Awesome. And then for those Monday 8 a.m., how do you how do you do that? Is that something if you're going to open that up? Is that something people can tune into online? Is that something that people have to oh, in good. a physical spot mm-hmm. for? No, it's on Zoom. So so we I've actually never met him in person. So we've been I've been working with him for three years now on Zoom every Monday morning uh, on on Zoom video conferencing. Uh, so that's a good point. How uh, so if you do want to get in touch with me to figure that out, you can. Um, Find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, and send me a DM. My DMs are open, uh, and then I'll send you the link on Monday. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and of course, I, I'll, I can just send you an email for uh, if you're if you're interested. Yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, we haven't gotten into the specifics of your company and what you're creating, and I'd, I'd really love to do that. Um, so what is Forge, and and uh, what is the like the three-liner for it? Yeah, definitely. So Forge, we we say that we specialize in building, uh, we've, we build flexible scheduling and talent sharing software that allows businesses to offer flexible schedules to their employees and partner with other businesses to offer more hours and more income to their employees. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, I'll so it's it like, a, yeah, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, so uh, businesses essentially trade these kind of flex employees and um, something like that. Yeah. So basically, what our software allows companies to do is, you know, step one is companies build what we call like a curated, qualified labor pool, and so these are people mm-hmm. who work for them. They're employed by the company. They're trained by the company. They've gone through all the processes and procedures. They're hired by the company. But they're people that need a little bit more flexibility. So oftentimes it's people that might work a second job. So they work somewhere else down the street or they're also going to college or maybe they have a side business that they need a little bit of flexibility around or they're actors and actresses or they're college students or retirees or whatever it may be. Um, People that need flexibility, companies can build a flex pool on Forge of these folks. And then Mm. what the company does is any hours that they need filled that typically are like non-core hours. So, um, you know, maybe at a retailer, there's a big sale that's coming up and they need more staff or it's holidays. They need to staff up. Or if it's a distribution warehouse that tries to fill, you know, e-commerce, digitally native brands, maybe Black Friday was, you know, 
bigger than expected. So they all of a sudden need to staff more people. What they can do is they can just post on Forge and say, I need, you know, five people to come in from 8 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. They push that out. It sends out a push notification to all those Flex associates on their phone. And then they can pick up that shift, go in and work and get paid. Um, so it's really allowing people to have a lot more flexibility and control over the work that they do, make more income by you know being a part of multiple flex pools for multiple companies at once. And then um, is great for the companies because it allows them to get mm. access to you know, more labor, especially in a time where there are actually more jobs in the U.S. today than people to fill them. So that's mm. the deal. That's really interesting because I heard like rumors of a change to the type of work, but only in software development uh, or, you know, startups and essentially startups like uh, hiring a bunch of people uh, in these flex capacities. And I remember hearing like uh, rumors of businesses like this maybe five or six years ago. Um, but this is interesting because this is almost this is in-person companies, correct? Sorry, could you say that like again? In-person work. Yep, exactly. So this is like work. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, everything that we do is cool. um, mostly brick and mortar companies. So it's, you know, people within four walls physically going to a spot to get that work fulfilled. Whoa, interesting. That's a really cool uh, niche. Uh, and uh, you must have some really interesting data about work times and uh, kind of like when most on-demand work is would that be like before Christmas and stuff? You don't have to go and do it if you if you if that's not available. But yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, tons of interesting data. Honestly, it really depends on the companies. So we have some companies. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give an example. Um, you know, we we work with a company that uh, manufactures and sells jacuzzis, and so like mm-hmm. their peak time is gonna be way different than a retailer who sells um, you know winter coats. So, and same like pool companies that are open during the summer or companies that cater mostly towards back to school. There are a lot of different peaks and valleys in labor depending on the company. So we have a lot of really interesting data around that. Perhaps one of the most interesting data points that I think we have is, you know, where employees are working. So like if an employee is a part of multiple labor pools, where are they choosing to spend their time? And that gives us some leading factors to be able to go back to our clients and say, hey, you know, um, you know, we have data that suggests that your flex employees, there are a portion of them that are in these other pools as well. And they're actually picking mm-hmm. up more shifts over in these other places. So they're less likely to work more hours for you. Maybe that comes down to there needs to be a culture change. Maybe there needs to be a manager change maybe the way that people are working in that environment isn't safe. So they're kind of, you know, the data of when, where, and how people are working is really interesting. And then of course we can see kind of labor trends across the entire United States. So where, where is there more demand for employers of needing people to work? Where is there more um, kind of supply? So it's a lot of really interesting, you know, labor data on, on both sides for companies and employees. And can you, are, are you guys doing a consultancy service where, you then, service where you then take that data and then, and then help these companies with that? So we have kind of best practices that we help companies uh, with. Mm-hmm. We've thought about doing more consulting for companies. Um, and it's something that we, we might do. It might be like an additional package that we help folks with, but we're really mm-hmm. um, kind of digitalize a lot of that data in, in nice dashboards and reports for our clients so that they can, um, really just see the data and then kind of make their own decisions. And in some cases we'll partner yeah. with like an Accenture or a Deloitte um, and mm. they can help with some of that for larger clients. And it seems like it might be a good inbound marketing type of thing where you kind of like put that content out there and get a whole bunch of other people uh, aware of, of this, this interesting data. Definitely. Yeah. No, it's really, yeah. really interesting. The data, the data behind it all is uh, I never really thought about it when I first started the company, but now that we're collecting it, I'm like, wow, there's actually a lot of stuff here that even I feel like governments would be interested in of just like hey, uh, how how people in the United States are working. So yeah. Interesting. Are do you have any international plans? Is there anybody doing this internationally or um so we are in talks with a few groups right now. It'll probably take us, you know, a year or two to really get there. Um from our knowledge, not not too many people are really trying this. Like you said, there are a lot of, a lot of companies that cater to this more for 
um, like white collar work, um, but not right. brick and mortar. Interesting. Well, cool. So uh, what, how can people find out more about you and find out more about Forge? Yeah. So people can find me online. I'm at stacyferreira.com. People can email me at stacy at stacyferreira.com. They can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. I'm just at Stacy Ferreira on pretty much all of those. So I'm easy to find. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for coming on that show. This was really, really fun. Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.